and let's continue in our study in the book of Jude, and we've come to verse 12. So let's look at verse 12 and then uh, look back a little bit so that we can understand what uh, the author is talking about. These are the ones he has been describing uh, apostates, apostate-type teachers, false teachers in the church. Um, They they have been charged with uh, very, uh, very serious things, and uh, primarily they deny the Lord and Master, uh, Jesus Christ, so they're questioning uh, the deity of Christ, uh, and they also change the grace of God into sensuality. Now, I've gone quite a, to quite an extent in explaining that, so we should know what all of that means in the previous verse to where we are today, which is in verse 12. In verse 11, he historically uh, drew upon three biblical characters uh, to use as comparison to these. He used Cain and uh, Balaam and Korah. We talked about that last time, but we're keeping all of this in mind. These are the ones who, who's he talking about? He's talking about the false teachers that have come, that have crept into the church somehow. These are the ones uh, in your love feasts. In the early church, now it's in the plural, uh, agapes. Uh, in the plural, it it is a reference to... Uh, to the love feasts of the early church. Today, the purpose of, of fellowship meals is, a, is different from what it started out to be in the early church. These, they called them love feasts. It was, uh, it was an early church phenomenon. We, 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 we mimic it in some ways today. We call it a fellowship meal or whatever. But it was more intimate and personal in the early church. Um, everybody brought food, so it's like a potluck or a covered dish, whatever you want to call it. And everyone would share each other's food. So everybody would uh, sit at the meal, and everybody who could would bring plenty so that even the poor folks in church uh, would have an ample serving of food. Um, wanted to make sure that everybody had enough. And it was a time, really, of Christian love, and of celebrating Christ and what He had done for, for everyone, but it was it was different from from the Lord's table, the, the table of communion, the last the Lord's supper. Uh, of course, there the bread and and the uh, cup signify remembering His death. But this was a meal. This was a love feast. Now the love feast is addressed in First Corinthians. Um, to chapter 11, and there's, there's the, the letter to, the first letter to, to the Corinthians from Paul is mostly a scathing condemnation. So when we refer to 1 Corinthians about something, uh, we need to cover up a little bit because Paul is really scolding folks about the way they're doing. And part of his scolding was how they had abused the love feast, uh, in Corinth, and I think if we read 
what is said in 1 Corinthians 11, we get an idea of how the love feast came under abuse in the early church. It was a beautiful thing to start out with. But in, um, in Corinth, uh, the picture is people, of being, uh, the, uh, people being gluttonous, grabbing food, devouring it so fast that others didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't have a chance to get anything. Uh, and it had become it had become a polluted thing, uh, a thing of of greed and a thing of where people could invite other people who really didn't have any business there, and they would eat. And some of the poor people were left out, and it became something other than what it originally started to be. Originally, these love feasts were meals where where Christian folks who were brothers and sisters in Christ, and they had an they had they shared with with each other uh, warmly and intimately in many places in many cases their their feelings they opened up with one another they confer they confer conversed conversed with one another they shared uh, things about their lives things that they were facing uh, they talked about matters of the faith sometimes there were opportunities for people who were more mature in the faith to instruct. Uh, those who were not as mature in the faith, so it was an, it was a a time of, of discipleship and and teaching. Uh, it was a time where people could uh, talk about uh, loved ones who had not come into the faith, or they could discuss with each other the difficulties they were having uh, in in living their faith in the world where they were. It was, a, it was just a beautiful thing where they sort of shepherded one another. Keep that in mind. They cared for one another. Uh, so they, they would shepherd one another in the sense uh, that they could guide one another and submit themselves uh, to the maturity of, a, of another Christian believer. And it was really a beautiful and wonderful thing. And to call it a love feast was probably a, a good word for it because they came out of love and in, in the love of Christ and for each other, they expressed their most intimate concerns with things that they faced, they faced within the faith. So um, these, <laughs> these infidels come in and they've, they've found a way to gain authority over people. You know, in most churches, you don't expect people to come in in a in a high-handed way, and then start taking advantage, and then be very convincing, and and uh, and make you feel like that they're people of authority, or they're teachers who know what they're talking about. So, so many times, Christians get caught unaware in situations like that. That's what happened here in the in the case of the church in the time of Jude. These apostates, these false teachers, would embed themselves within the church and in the love feasts. They found a perfect opportunity where Christians were vulnerable uh, to talk about things that they ordinarily wouldn't talk about. And here they could spread their lies and they could spread their uh, immorality and their insubordination to Christ, their, in, their irreverence about things, and they would literally undermine the faith. The, the abuse of the love feasts became such a problem that the love feasts, quite frankly, didn't last very long. Uh, they passed from the scene fairly quickly. But in this case, Jude is addressing uh, how the love feasts of the church in his day and the ones to whom he wrote 
were coming under an abuse because of these false teachers. This was a perfect setting for false teachers to catch vulnerable Christians unaware and begin to lead them astray into into some sort of uh, perverted teaching, which is what Jude is uh, warning the church about. He calls them in different ways. He describes them here in, in different ways. The first one, he says they're spilades, uh, probably translated hidden reefs. Now, a hidden reef, I, uh, I lived in Key West for a while, and there was a reef on out, uh, on out from, the, from the island, and there were, there were other smaller reefs, as I understand it. These, uh, these, uh, these reefs were hidden from sight. They were just under, they were just under the, the, the water level. They're an unseen danger. A hidden reef we could probably speak of as a as a danger that you cannot see, but you have to be aware of it. In this case, he calls them hidden reefs. They were danger, a danger to the church. Uh, they were rocks close to the shore, just under that perhaps you couldn't see. And if you got too close, it was dangerous to a ship, especially the bottom could get ripped out of a of a ship. Uh, and that would cause destruction, even death, drowning, death by, by drowning. So first of all, he calls them uh, he calls them hidden reefs or a hidden a hidden type danger, something that you can't see, but you need to learn that it's there. All right. Next, he calls them. Well, he says he describes here. He says hidden reefs, these hidden dangers. Feasting together with you shamelessly or fearlessly, aphobos, aphobos, without without fear, without shame. So they're right in there with you, feasting together with you, without shame, without conviction, without conscience. They were unconscionable people. Didn't bother them at all uh, to be false teachers, to deny the deity of Christ, to change the grace of God into sensuality. Didn't bother them at all. This is something that uh, they found a wide open field of gullible people where they could just come right in and do and teach as they wished because it says in the next phrase here, shepherding themselves. Okay, they, didn't, they, were, they were insubordinate. They didn't realize or recognize any authority above them. So they shepherded themselves, all right? And I mentioned earlier how people in the love feasts would shepherd one another in the sense that they would care for, tend to, and feed one another in a spiritual sense, where mature Christian leaders could help younger Christians uh, grow in the faith. Well, these guys, these apostates, shepherded themselves. They had no, they had no problem uh, with de- defying authority. They didn't recognize authority. They only saw themselves. And so they are shepherding themselves. Then the next way that he describes them here um, is clouds without water. 
if you're thirsty, in the, in the days of Elijah, for example, Ahab and Jezebel, in those days, um, people longed for rain. It was a time of severe drought. Uh, and just to see a little puff of a cloud somewhere gave everybody hope that uh, water was about to come. They were perhaps going to get a, a drink of water. Well, in this case, clouds without water, this, uh, this speaks of someone who appears to bring the promise of something but doesn't bring anything at all. Uh, in the case of a waterless cloud, it has the promise of rain, but it never drops any water. In other words, these false teachers had nothing to offer. They had nothing in any way that they could give in order to satisfy the yearning of Christians to learn. This is early church, and they didn't have the completed canon of Scripture. Uh, and so early Christians were desiring to learn more and more about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the, the journey that they are taking, what shall I do next? Uh, tell me more about Christ. Tell me more about the Holy Spirit. These guys didn't have anything to offer. That uh, clouds without uh, water, without wind, actually comes from Proverbs 25, uh, where, where, where Solomon writes, whoever boasts himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. These false teachers were promising to bring the blessing of God, but the blessing of God was not there because they had, they had, they had groundless instruction. They didn't, all they needed to do was to replace the grace of God with sensuality and then deny the deity of Christ and the sovereignty of God. That, that was their attack on, uh, on the church. They made promises, but they couldn't deliver. They made a promise of rain, uh, but there was no water. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that in Matthew's gospel, in uh, chapter 12, the Lord speaks of dry places where evil spirits wander. Uh, it's also referred to in Luke uh, chapter 11. So these waterless clouds appear to, be, appear to be driven by evil spirits. And so in that case, if you want let to the, let the scriptures stand as its own commentary, you're having demonic forces invade the church with this false teaching uh, trying to spring a false religious system with false teachers and false systems out of out of the church in that day so they're 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 blown around they're driven around by by demons and they can't really give anything so he calls them uh, clouds without water and then he says uh, by winds just being carried about uh, being um, uh, carried away or, or removed here and then and then gone, I guess is a way you could uh, talk about this long Greek compound word here. Um, being being carried about, winds that are being carried about. So a cloud that doesn't have any um, direction that that has no place 
where it's really going, that would be like these false teachers. They weren't carrying these people anywhere. They were just circling around, and they were introducing immorality and a denial of authority, especially the deity of Christ, the sovereignty of God. Uh, and they were there to really gratify their own sensual lusts. And they found, apparently, they were finding in some churches a wide open field to accomplish what they were seeking to accomplish. They had no fear of, of the judgment of God. Uh, so here they were just, just moving along like wind with, with nothing that uh, is, there, is there for them. Uh, they go as far as they can, and apparently these winds would just move on out when they had done all that they could do if they ever reached an end to what they were doing. And, of course, it was the, it was the business of the, of the apostles and the leaders of the church. It was their business to, to write like this and to correct false teaching even to the point of driving false teachers away, uh, if that's what it came to. And then he calls them uh, trees of autumn without fruit, having died twice, having been uprooted. Now, all that refers to these trees. So autumn time a tree that is supposed to put forth fruit, uh, especially trees that were supposed to put forth fruit in this particular uh, time of, of year. They didn't have any fruit, so, so they were fruitless. But they were also not just dead in the sense that they gave no fruit, but they were doubly dead in the sense that they had become uprooted. Uh, you're not going to find any fruit on an uprooted tree. So here are autumn trees uprooted without fruit. So they're twice dead. Uh, they produce no fruit because there's no life in them at all. Fruitless. Fruitless, dead down to the very root because they, they had been uh, uprooted, uh, have come out of the ground. They have no connection to the earth. So they're absolutely without fr fruit. So what that means is, it is impossible for these false teachers to provide anything. They can't give anything. They can't produce new life. Their teachings cannot produce new life, new creatures in God, born again. Their teachings they in no way can build up or edify the Christians, uh, the believers. So, so they had nothing to offer. And You know, it's sad to think about, but... We see a lot of that in Christendom today where it just seems like those who are teaching and those who are trying to receive the teaching are just all uh, dead because there's, they're not giving anything that's alive, the, the scriptural teaching, the wonderful word of God. They're just not giving anything. Then he calls them here um, wild waves of the sea. Foaming out of their shame, out of their uh, shameful deeds, or out of their out of their out of their disgrace, out of their shame. 
I lived in Key West for nearly four years. And Key West, you know, it's it's an island. The whole place is surrounded. On one side of the island is the Gulf of Mexico. On the other side is the Atlantic Ocean. And there's a there's a neat place there, the State Park, where the two, where the Gulf and the and the Atlantic meet, where they come together. I also know that quite often, especially at certain times of the year, there would be tremendous storms some miles offshore, and sometimes those storms would come onshore. But then you would have the day after those storms or some hours after those storms, you would have the foam, the foam that washed up and that it foamed because it 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 carried contaminants and it carried waste material. Uh, it, it carried dead things. It carried the results of a tremendous storm. And it wasn't it wasn't a beautiful, lovely wave like you'd see most of the time when you'd go to the beach and a nice thing that you could enjoy. No, this was more of an ugly thing that was a result of a terrible storm, and it only brought nastiness and death and filth, these wild, foaming waves that were being pushed in because of a storm, and the storm had been deadly, and it had wreaked its havoc on the creatures in the sea and... and uh, and it would bring up things and wash those things to shore, and all of that together would cause the waves to to foam up. So when when we said it was out of their shame, it was out of disgrace because there wasn't anything lovely or beautiful about it. It was only nastiness. It was only disgrace. It was only shame. Then he calls them wandering. Uh, see, wandering stars. To whom the the zophos, the gloom of darkness, to the age has been reserved. As uh, Iona in the Greek usually means forever or eternally. So to whom, wandering stars, to whom the gloom of of darkness eternally or forever, has been reserved. Wandering stars, asteris, stars, planetae, wandering. Okay, so you have two words put together that almost seems like an oxymoron because you have the word asteris. That means a star. In the case here, it's in plural stars. Planetae. It comes from a word that means planet, and a planet was a was a what they would consider a wandering star, but it's used with the word star. Generally, when it's speaking of a planet, people would look up in those days, sky gazers, stargazers, and they would note that certain stars would move from one night to the next. Those were the planets, and they went on a course that could be predicted. But he's talking here. Uh, wandering stars, to use the two words together, uh, the only thing that he could be talking about would be what we call a shooting star. Most of us have seen a shooting star. It's it's a phenomenal. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's a flash in the pan. It's gone. It's there, and then it's gone. But it really, it really makes a blast when it streaks across the the sky. But then it's gone about as quickly as it showed up. It's gone. 
There's nothing there anymore. So it seems to me that Jude is speaking of of um, of shooting stars that seem to be ablaze with glory, but then they're gone and they never come back and they have disappeared into darkness. This is how he describes these false teachers. He says, you know, they seem to be a flash and a glorious thing for just an instant. But when it's all over, they've disappeared. And they have disappeared in the gloom of darkness, and you'll never see them again. They're gone. To whom the gloom of darkness to the age or or forever has been reserved. This has been reserved for them. Now, we'll talk more about uh, judgment that seems to accompany this last phrase that we've studied, uh, judgment that befalls on such. Uh, We'll talk about that next time. Uh, But for this time, uh, we'll be through, and I thank you for listening.